and welcome to Breaking the Curtain with me, Chrissy, and me, Joss. Don't forget to silence all phones. Or don't, it's a podcast. And most importantly, enjoy the show. This story takes place in the winter of 1996 in New York City, inside the fourth floor of an apartment building on the corner of Greenwich and Spring Street in Lower Manhattan, is 35-year-old composer Jonathan Larson, who is preparing for the first preview of his new show, Rent. He will soon become the future of musical theater, but the world doesn't know that yet, and unfortunately, Jonathan would never live to see the success of his work. Before we continue, let's go back in time to get to know a little more about Jonathan. Jonathan Larson was born on February 4, 1960 in Mount Vernon, New York, to parents Nanette and Alan Larson. Not long after Jonathan was born, the family, his parents and older sister Julie, moved to White Plains, New York. It was a comfortable middle-class household filled with the sounds of cast recordings playing over the stereo in their living room. They would spend summers in Cape Cod, where Jonathan would eventually see his first-ever stage production, The Wizard of Oz at the Cape Cod Playhouse. At the age of nine, Jonathan saw his first Broadway musical, Hair. While the Larsons could not afford to see many Broadway productions, they made sure their record collection was stocked with the latest cast recordings. Jonathan attended White Plains High School, where he performed the lead roles in many of his school's productions. After graduating in 1978, Jonathan attended Adelphi University in Garden City, New York, with a four-year scholarship as a theater major. He performed in Godspell as Jesus, Twelfth Night as Malvolio, Rhymers of Eldridge as Scully, Moon Children as Lucky, and was the music director for several cabarets. Jonathan felt fortunate to study under Jacques Burdick, who had been strongly influenced by theater critic Robert Brewstein, who had established what Jonathan described as an undergrad version of the drama school program at Yale. He went on to participate during the summer in a theater program at the Barn Theater in Augusta, Michigan, as a piano player, where he eventually earned his equity card for the Actors' Equity Association. His senior year musical was one called Sacramoral Inority. The music was written by Jonathan, billed under the credit Joe Sondheim. Book and lyrics were written by friend David Armstrong about the pressure to conform. It was an attack on Jerry Falwell, Jesse Helms, the Christian right, and their positions on school prayer and homosexuality. Jonathan graduated from Adelphi with a Bachelor of Fine Arts degree in 1982. Although he graduated with dreams of becoming an actor, by the end of his time there, he had written eight or ten shows and found that he liked it as much as performing, and thus began leaning more into composing. Jonathan had written a fan letter to Stephen Sondheim, who responded with an invitation to meet in person. Jonathan often recounted their conversation with the advice given by Sondheim. Don't be an actor. There's more dignity playing piano in a bar. Jonathan moved back to New York, finding a four-story apartment located on Greenwich Street in Lower Manhattan. It was a loft space that had been converted into a three-bedroom apartment divided by makeshift walls. Roommates came and went splitting the 1050 month rent. The doorbell didn't work, so visitors had to call from the phone on the corner, and keys would be tossed down. In the middle of the kitchen, a clawfoot bathtub. Every December from then on, he'd host what he'd call a peasant's feast at his apartment, where everyone brought a dish, drank cheap booze, smoked pot, and talked about the goals they had achieved that year and what they hoped to accomplish in the upcoming one. 
Jonathan soon began writing the book, music, and lyrics for a musical adaptation of George Orwell's 1984 and actively pursued getting it produced on Broadway for January 1st in the year 1984 itself, with Jerome Robbins or Hal Prince directing. During this time, Jonathan also composed three songs for the beloved Sesame Street animated segments. He would also continue going to auditions during the development of 1984. However, being a character actor and not a chorus boy, he was usually seen out before having the chance to speak. In the fall of 1982, Jonathan formed the piano bar trio Jay Glitz. In addition to Jonathan, included Marin Mazzi and Scott Burkle. The three had met the previous year during their summer at the Barn Theater and stayed close friends when they all moved to the city. Jay Glitz began performing at places they had open mic nights. They were a campy close harmony trio performing classics as well as some of John's first original songs. The three friends alternated between playing themselves and also their fictional alter egos. Marin was Joan Glitz, Scott was Elwood Fritz, and Jonathan was Marv. The show included parody commercials for the Jay Glitz Motor Lodge, the Jay Glitz Musical Compilation Album, and the Jay Glitz Fan Club. Jonathan's parents, Nan and Al Larson, never missed a performance. Sometimes the two were the only audience in attendance. In 1983, a production of his first musical, Sacramoral Inority, now under the title Saved, an immoral musical on the moral majority, was presented as an equity showcase and played a four-week run at Rusty's Storefront Blitz, a small theater on 42nd Street. Both Jonathan and his co-writer David Armstrong won a writing award from ASCAP. Sondheim encouraged Jonathan to become involved with the American Society of Composers, Authors, and Publishers in the Musical Theatre Workshop. Jonathan described ASCAP in an interview with the American Theatre as a sort of 12-step meeting for people who write musicals, but you get to show your work to top-notch professionals in the field. By the time he had become a member of ASCAP, Jonathan Larson had written at least 100 songs and had seen them in productions and had seen them work or not work with audiences. If Peter Stone, head of the Dramatist Guild, or Sondheim said something that he disagreed with, he'd say, I disagree, and I'll tell you why. Some of Jonathan's peers had never had their work performed, and they would be quick to agree and throw away their project, but not Jonathan Larson. Jonathan continued trying his hand at acquiring the stage rights to 1984 by contacting Donald Farber and finished recording a demo, all while Jay Glitz was beginning to book more solid gigs. Their first was a gig at Panache in March of 1984, which was once located between 57th and 58th. It was billed as the Cabaret at the Magic Pan and was located inside a restaurant that mainly served crepes. The trio was thrilled to get a spot at the Cabaret stage at such a great venue in a prime location. They put together a rooftop publicity photo shoot together in tuxedos for the press flyers, all of which were marked with a fabulous flare of green, pink, yellow, and blue highlighter. Pretty soon afterwards, Jay Glitz booked a weekly gig at the well-known cabaret venue Don't Tell Mama on 46th Street, where they appeared every Tuesday at 11 p.m. in April of 1984. Jay Glitz hung up their tuxedos the following year. With 1984 having come and gone, Jonathan made final efforts to get his stage production of 1984 produced, before ultimately beginning work on his original musical, Superbia. Superbia is a science fiction satire rock musical, which took inspiration from George Orwell's 1984. 
Instead, the year is now 2064. Superbia is a nation that contains two states, InCity and Outland classes. InCity is a huge nightclub floating in space and is home to two types of people, the prods and the inns. The prods are the elite few who control Superbia. They create products known as shapes, which are manufactured by robots and consumed by outs. The inns are privileged to live in InCity, as long as they agree to act out their scripted lives and promote designated shapes on camera. Outland covers what was once known as Planet Earth and is a giant suburb of InCity. The outs who live there are soulless animatons, unaware that they have lost their human qualities. The outs' entire existence is based upon the buying and selling of the shapes, which are advertised to them over the media transmitter, MT. Josh Out a failed inventor, is considered a freak, even by his family. Josh spends time collecting and refurbishing broken shapes, as well as older 19th and 20th century antique junk. One day, Josh resurrects a music box whose melody can magically awaken the suppressed feelings of superbians. Josh meets Elizabeth Inn, a free-spirited girl. She inspires him to bring his box over to InCity to broadcast it over MT for all of suburbia to see and hear. Because of strict rules forbidding outs from InCity, Josh is forced to masquerade as an inn and becomes addicted to the fast life and drugs of the day. He becomes so dazed and seduced by it all that he forgets why he came. It takes Elizabeth and the power of the box to bring Josh back to his senses. Marin Mazzy played the leading lady, Elizabeth, for some of the show's development, and Scott Burkle also appeared in future readings of Superbia. While working on his new musical, Jonathan got himself a job at the Moondance Diner in the spring of 1985 at the age of 25. Jonathan even had a hand in writing the employee manual for the diner, and I'm sure it'll come as no surprise to know that there are pages inside dedicated to the music played at the diner. If you put something on that is obviously rubbing a majority of customers the wrong way, change it. It is said that many customers came into the diner just to see Jonathan. Many people loved him. In late 1985, Jonathan presented songs from Superbia to composers at the ASCAP Musical Theatre Workshop, where he received positive feedback from Stephen Sondheim. He continued to work on Superbia for several years, mounting staged readings at Naked Angels and the Public Theater, in addition to producing private readings and submitting the show to regional theaters. The show itself saw multiple revisions, eventually taking on a darker tone. He'd go on to work on projects alongside Superbia, including adapted and composed music underscoring for American Tale, Blinkins, and Sweet Valley Twins book and cassette episodes. Jonathan also worked on music for Adelphi Cabaret shows and wrote a modern dance score for Brenda Daniels' Garden Party. Jonathan later received the Richard Rogers Production Award and the Richard Rogers Development Grant for his early drafts of the musical in 1987. The money from the Rogers Grant funded a reading in December 1988 at Playwrights Horizon in New York. Jonathan was able to get into a rehearsal room and make revisions with hopes of winning another grant for a full-on workshop production. Jonathan expressed his anger at not being able to use a cast that included the friends he wrote many of the songs for with proper staging and an actual rock band rather than just a piano as accompaniment. The score had lost its signature synthesizer sound that he had been so proud of. The feedback from the industry professionals at these workshops sent Jonathan and Superbia through multiple different directions. With each rewrite, the tone of the show got darker. 
In a letter to Harold Prince, Jonathan explained, Superbia is an attempt to bring a new audience to the American musical theater. People aged 22 to 35, so-called yuppies, who can afford to go to a show, but don't because A, it doesn't deal with topics that concern them, B, the music isn't hip, C, it isn't fashionable. Playwrights Horizons staged two workshops for Superbia under the direction of R.J. Cutler and producer Ira Weitzman in December of 1988, which left Jonathan feeling devastated. Every producer who came to his Superbia workshop had told him it was both too expensive to mount off-Broadway and too advanced to mount on-Broadway. This would be the last workshop Superbia would ever receive. In the summer of 1989, Jonathan met with playwright Billy Aronson, who had conceived an idea for a contemporary version of Puccini's La Boheme, in which the luscious splendor of Puccini's world would be replaced with the coarseness and noise of modern New York. In search of a composer who could provide the noise Aronson sought, he went to Ira Weitzman, director of musical theater at Playwrights Horizons. Ira recommended two composers who fit the vision, one of whom was Jonathan Larson. Larson and Aronson would then record three songs together on a demo tape. Additionally, Jonathan and his good friend, Victoria Leacock, worked together to present Superbia in concert at the Village Gate on September 11, 1989, with the vision he originally had for the show by using a live band and actors who sang rock rather than the traditional musical theater sound. Unfortunately, this was one of the only times Superbia was ever performed with a full band. Following the Village Gate concert, Jonathan Larson was granted the Stephen Sondheim Award from the American Music Theatre Festival, where he contributed to the musical Sitting on the Edge of the Future. Jonathan sent pitches to many regional theaters to put on productions of Superbia, receiving rejection letters stating the show was just too complicated. So he then shifted his focus to writing a rock monologue based on the failure of his project. Just Jonathan, a piano, and a band. Nobody could tell him it was too big or complicated. His one-man show was named 3090, a reference to turning 30 in the year 1990, which was then changed to Boho Days, which he dedicated to his childhood best friend. Jonathan performed Boho Days in his agent's office for the artistic directors of the Second Stage Theatre. Following the performance, he was offered their auditorium for five performances so long as he could raise several thousand dollars to cover the expenses of a band, sound, and lighting. Jonathan hoped Second Stage would pick up the show. Aspiring producer Jeffrey Seller was in attendance for a performance and thought highly of Jonathan's contemporary style, and told John he hoped they would work together someday. After making adjustments to the script, Jonathan retitled the show once again to Tick Tick Boom. The title refers to the twin ticking clocks of his potential and his friend's life, both of which he feared might be about to run out, as Jonathan had already lost several friends to the AIDS crisis. He called it a rock monologue, featuring 12 autobiographical songs and monologues about John, an aspiring writer of rock musicals, on the eve of his 30th birthday, voicing career frustrations his friend's HIV diagnosis, a fraught relationship he was having with a female dancer, and even about his agent, who had stopped returning his calls. The show itself was inspired by Spalding Gray's autobiographical Swimming to Cambodia and Eric Bogosian's Talk Radio. In 1991, he performed the show twice at the Village Gate with Roger Bart and the Well Hungarians, while continuing to work on Rent. 
Jonathan and Billy Aronson amicably parted ways in the fall due to the duo's creative visions not matching the piece. Aronson wanted the show to take place on the yuppie Upper West Side, whereas Larson wanted to set it on the Bohemian Lower East Side. With Aronson's blessing and well wishes, Jonathan worked alone on the piece. Rent tells the story of a group of impoverished young artists struggling to survive and create a life in Lower Manhattan's East Village in the thriving days of Bohemian Alphabet City, under the shadow of HIV and AIDS. Jonathan would frequent the Life Cafe on the corner of 10th Street and Avenue B, where he wrote most of Rent, sipping on coffee as he observed the various groups of neighborhood people who would regularly eat at Life Cafe. He even set the cafe as one of the play's most famous scenes, even featuring lyrics about the dishes served. In the summer of 1992, Jonathan was biking when he came across a new theater under construction. It was being built for the New York Theater Workshop, which had outgrown its small theater on Perry Street in the West Village. He took a look inside at the extraordinary New York Theater Workshop stage, 40 feet wide and 30 feet deep, in a house that had 150 seats. He quickly decided this was the perfect space to stage rent. On September 29th, he sent a script and a cassette of himself playing and singing the score to artistic director Jim Nicola. Nicola invited Jonathan to join The Usual Suspects, which consisted of a group of artists involved with the New York Theatre Workshop. It was the right time for Jonathan to bring a musical to New York Theatre Workshop, as they had been doing mostly new plays for the past nine years. Jim Nicola listened to Jonathan's tape the night it was dropped off, while the music was thrilling, the story wasn't quite there yet, but it certainly had promise and potential. Jonathan managed to reduce his job at the Moondance to three days a week, which left four days for writing. On Sunday nights, he'd boil a big tub of pasta and make a big pot of sauce, then mix them together and would eat that for dinner all week. He wanted to fuel himself like a machine, leaving all his thoughts reserved for writing. On December 4, 1992, Jonathan reprised his performance of Tick Tick Boom at the New York Theatre Workshop. During this time, he also recorded a demo of it for Geffen Publishing, packaging the songs together as if it were a pop album by a singer-songwriter. Unfortunately, Geffen passed on the album. Once again, Jonathan performed Tick Tick Boom, this time at the New York Theatre Workshop Osolo Mayo Festival on April 19, 1993. Two months later, New York Theatre Workshop staged the first reading of the musical from June 14th to 17th. Jim Nicola was amazed by the intensity of responses. Some thought the show was rough, but others were in love with the material and looked forward to further developments. Jeffrey Seller, who had met Jonathan several years earlier during Tick Tick Boom's performances at Second Stage, felt the time was right for him to produce a musical. He and Jonathan stayed in touch because he too wanted to bring rock music to Broadway. He came down to 4th Street to watch the workshop, finding the play to be a collage with no narrative shape. There were great songs, but there were also endless songs. Some producer friends he had brought with him left at intermission, assuring Jeffrey the work was unsalvageable. However, Seller was still interested, as long as John found a story as good as the music. The first studio production of Rent premiered in 1994. It featured songs that never made it to the final version, such as You're a Fool, Voicemail Number 4, He's a Fool, Open Road, the predecessor of What You Own, he says, On the Street, number one to three, You'll Get Over It, the predecessor of Tango Maureen, featuring Mark and Maureen, Right Brain, later rewritten as One Song Glory, featuring Roger, 
Do a Little Business, the predecessor of You'll See, featuring Benny, Mark, Roger, Angel, and Collins. Female to Female, A and B, featuring Maureen and Joanne. And Real Estate, a number where Benny tries to convince Mark to become a real estate agent and drop his filmmaking. Maureen was also HIV positive in this iteration of the show. The production starred Daphne Rubin Vega as Mimi and Anthony Rapp as Mark. The two would continue on with the show in the years to come. On October 21st, 1995, Jonathan officially quit his job as a waiter at the Moondance, where he had spent the past nine and a half years of his life waiting tables to pay for his art. He felt that he was finally in a place where he would be financially okay with rent in the works. His good friend Victoria Leacock recorded Jonathan's final day at work, which remains some of the most recognized video clips of Jonathan Larson. Being such a generous, giving person, the diner allowed John to comp all of his regulars on his final day, as stated in one of the clips. Alongside Rent, Jonathan had also composed the music for J.P. Morgan Saves the Nation, which was to be presented by On Guard Arts that same year. Rehearsals for Rent's fully staged off-Broadway premiere began on December 19, 1995, after a long search for the perfect cast to fit the image he had in mind. After all, the characters had been based on Jonathan's real-life friends, and having already written multiple different biographies for each character, he knew exactly what he was looking for in casting. Anthony Rapp continued on as Mark Cohen, a struggling Jewish filmmaker, and Adam Pascal starred as his roommate Roger Davis, an HIV-positive ex-addict rock musician. Daphne Rubin Vega played his love interest, Mimi Marquez, an HIV-positive heroin addict and stripper. Jesse L. Martin, who worked at the Moondance Diner with Jonathan, would play Tom Collins, an anarchist and gay philosophy professor with AIDS. Wilson Germain Heredia as Angel Dumont-Chunard, a drag queen and street musician who is suffering from AIDS. Idina Menzel as Maureen Johnson, a bisexual performance artist and Joanne's girlfriend, also Mark's ex-girlfriend. Freddie Walker played Joanne Jefferson, a lesbian Harvard graduate lawyer. Tay Diggs as Benny, the landlord of the building in which Mark, Roger, and Mimi live, and ex-roommate of Collins, Roger, Maureen, and Mark. That December, Jonathan held what would be his last peasant feast at 508 Greenwich. Instead of inviting his friends, he invited the cast and artistic staff of the off-Broadway production of Rent. He wanted all of them to know their job was to embody his friends, to honor them. Jonathan wanted all of them to begin their road to lifelong friendship. Jonathan has been quoted saying, Welcome to my house for a peasant's feast. Bring your food. We'll have drinks and food and sit and commune and share. This is my home, and it's your home, and you are my friend. And he gave a toast in which he said, This is a show about my friends, about my life, and you are my friends. This brings us back to the winter of 1996. Jonathan is in the theater for the final week of rehearsals, watching the last six years of hard work and dedication. On January 22nd, after dinner, director Michael Greif and the cast were rehearsing the song What You Own on Stage when Jonathan was suddenly struck by intense chest pains. He was short of breath and dizzy, telling a friend, You'd better call 911. I think I'm having a heart attack before falling to the floor between the last two rows of the theater. An ambulance rushed him to Cabrini Medical Center. On the way, the paramedics recorded that he had eaten a turkey sandwich that didn't taste quite right, had dinner, and smoked some marijuana before heading back inside the theater. 
vital signs were recorded as normal, and he had no smoking or cardiac risk factors. Although an EKG and CXR were performed, results were not recorded on his chart. Around 8.35 p.m. that evening, Jonathan experienced a dizzy spell while in the radiology department. Jonathan mentioned to a nurse that he wasn't able to take a breath. However, it's unknown if a doctor was informed of this episode. After 10 p.m., he was sent home with food poisoning as his diagnosis. Fearfully, he told his friends later that he couldn't believe the last song he would hear was his own song about dying. When Jonathan wakes the following morning, he calls the hospital to see if the tests showed evidence of food poisoning. He was told if there was something wrong, you would have been notified. That evening, his roommate returned to their apartment to find Jonathan in bed, pale, short of breath, and mumbling. On January 23rd, Jonathan finds that his symptoms have improved. However, by evening, the chest pains become so intense once again that he takes a cab to the closest emergency, St. Vincent's Hospital and Medical Center. Although the nurse triaged him as urgent, his CXR and EKG both read as normal. A friend later described Jonathan's appearance as slumped over in a chair with his head in his hands completely out of it. He was white as a ghost, sweating and pissed off. He recalls Jonathan saying, I just don't know what it is. I feel like shit but they can't find anything, and I just don't feel right. During the cab ride home from St. Vincent's Hospital on January 24th, Jonathan complained of the continued tightness in his chest, saying, nothing has changed. That evening, Jonathan, who always rode his bicycle even on the coldest winter days, took a taxi. In an attempt to save his strength, he arrived at the theater for a dress rehearsal performance of Rent for 200 invited guests. The show received a standing ovation. Around midnight, Jonathan met with New York Times reporter Anthony Tomasini, who told him that his music was tremendous and will change the direction of musical theater. Jonathan replied that he needed to respond in some way to celebrate the lives of his friends who have died at a young age. He explained the message of Rent to the reporter. It's not how many years you live, but how you fulfill the time you spend something he had learnt from a friend with AIDS. Tomasini compared him favorably to Stephen Sondheim, which left Jonathan on cloud nine knowing that through Sondheim's guidance and their special relationship, he was on his way to great success in his work. Friends waited for him at a local bar, but Jonathan decided it was too late at night and assumed the group had already left, so he headed home in a cab with plans to meet with the director in the morning. Inside his apartment, Jonathan turned on the stove to boil water for tea. It's said he likely collapsed and died within 10 minutes of returning home. His roommate returned home after 3 a.m. to find a gas flame burning under a tea kettle and Jonathan laying on the floor. Police arrived shortly after and pronounced him dead. Jonathan had suffered an aortic aneurysm, believed to have been caused by undiagnosed Marfan syndrome. Later that morning, Jim Nicola received a phone call from the production manager, who had just gotten off the phone with the police, revealing the news that Jonathan had passed. Calls were made to the cast, all agreeing they needed to be together. The company of Rent shuffled through a cold January blizzard, making their way to the theater, where they all huddled together, sharing in silence, disbelief, and tears. The word had spread quickly. Soon enough, the theater was packed with friends of Jonathan. The creative team worked to come up with a solution for the following evening's first preview, seeking answers through those closest to John. Nan and Al Larson were flying to New York and the pilot allowed them to make a phone call. 
Without any hesitation, it was clear the show would go on. It was decided the cast would do a sit-down reading, no costumes, scripts in hand. By the time they reached La Vie Bohème, at the end of Act 1, the cast completely erupted into a full-out staged performance. It was an explosion of energy and emotions. During intermission, it was decided they'd continue to do the staged version throughout Act 2. The show ended with a standing ovation. The cast exited the stage, heading backstage to change out of their costumes. When they returned, nobody in the audience had moved. The cast made their way down to the front, sitting together in silence. Everyone was painfully aware of the lack of Jonathan in attendance, who had been there every step of the way and would have loved to be there now. The stillness continued until a voice from the back of the theater said, Thank you, Jonathan Larson. And that broke the silence, with the audience bursting into yet another thunderous applause. A memorial for Jonathan was held on February 3rd at the Minetta Lane Theater, only a day before what would have been his 36th birthday. Ironically, the restaurant next to the Minetta Lane Theater was called Lab OM. After being faced with the unimaginable, Rent's creative team, including musical director Tim Weil, director Michael Greif, and dramaturg Lynn Thompson, had the responsibility of polishing Jonathan Larson's final work fall into their laps. Jonathan had wanted to see what Rent looked like on stage before making any further changes. The team knew they needed to do right by him and only make changes they knew Jonathan would have approved of. They took a look through earlier drafts of Rent, so if something needed to be added to make the story more clear, they'd be able to use his own material. In the end, the team cut around eight minutes, reintroduced a narrative that had been cut earlier in the workshop development, and moved some songs around. Rent began previews just three weeks after Jonathan Larson's death, receiving the utmost praise. Critics called it the breakthrough musical of the 90s. Within a week of opening, the box office had sold $38,000 worth of tickets, making it impossible to book a ticket through its now entirely sold-out run, with even actor Anthony Rapp helping take ticket orders over the phone. The off-Broadway production closed on March 31st, with a Broadway transfer in the works just in time for the Tony Award nomination cutoff. It was clear to everyone involved that Rent belonged in front of as many people as possible. Once the move had been confirmed, family and friends closest to Jonathan spent a day looking at the different Broadway houses to find the best match for rent before making their way into the Niederlander on 41st Street. Around 1992, Jonathan and his best friend Jonathan Burkhart had noticed it was possible to step inside the empty Niederlander theater. Breaking in, Larson leapt on stage and mused about what it would be like to have a show there. They knew they had found the show's future home. On April 9, 1996, Rent was awarded the Pulitzer Prize for Drama, making Jonathan the first to receive the Drama Award posthumously. On April 19, the production moved to Broadway's Niederlander Theatre on 41st Street, beginning previews before opening on April 29 to rave reviews. It became the hottest ticket in town, with A-list celebrities constantly popping in and out of the backstage area to congratulate the cast and sign their name on the wall. A Broadway lottery system was introduced through Rent with the intention to make theatre more affordable and accessible. Had Jonathan Larson not written the piece, he would not have been able to afford a ticket to see it. Jonathan himself had sold books to afford a movie ticket only a week before his death. Fans would begin sleeping outside the theatre for the chance to score first-come, first-served $20 tickets to see the show within the first two rows of the theatre. 
During the spring of 1996, Rent won the Obie, Drama Critics Circle, Drama Desk, Outer Critics Circle, Drama League, and the Theatre World Awards. The production would go on to be nominated for 10 Tony Awards, winning four Best Musical, Best Book, Best Original Score, and Best Performance by a Featured Actor in a Musical for Wilson Germain Heredia. Julie Larson accepted the awards on her brother's behalf. In 1997, the Jonathan Larson Performing Arts Foundation was created by Jonathan's family. The foundation is an unconditional annual investment in individual talent. The grant is awarded to musical theater composers, lyricists, and librettists, or writing teams early in their career, to support artistic endeavors and safeguard long term music writing careers. The grants Jonathan had received inspired him with the professional confidence to continue pursuing musical theater and ultimately to finish Rent. A revisited version of Tick Tick Boom received its off Broadway premiere at the Jane Street Theater in May 2001. Back in 1996, Victoria Leacock asked David Auburn, author of the Pulitzer Prize winning play Proof, to reconstruct Tick Tick Boom. The rock monologue transformed into a three actor musical. The story follows Jonathan days before his 30th birthday. Jonathan's best friend Michael wants him to join corporate America, and his girlfriend Susan wants him to move with her to Cape Cod. But he doesn't want to abandon his musical that he's worked on for the past five years and has not yet given up faith that it will be his big break. The original cast was Rala Sparaza as John, Jerry Dixon as Michael, and Amy Spanger as Susan, with one of Jonathan's real life friends, Molly Ringwald, taking over the role of Susan later in the run. The production closed on January 6, 2002, before being imported to Seoul, South Korea, briefly. An American national tour launched in 2003, performing in Dallas, Fort Lauderdale, West Palm Beach, East Lansing, Michigan, Philadelphia, Baltimore, Minneapolis, Hershey, Pennsylvania, Nashville, Washington, D.C., Pittsburgh, Chicago, and Boston. In 2004, a film adaptation of Rent, directed by Chris Columbus, was announced, which would feature the original Broadway cast, along with actress Rosario Dawson joining as Mimi and Tracy Toms as Joanne. The film was released in cinemas on November 23, 2005, nearly 10 years after opening off Broadway. On April 24, 2006, the original Broadway cast reunited once again. This time on stage for a one night performance of the musical at the Nederlander Theater. This performance raised over $2 million for the Jonathan Larson Performing Arts Foundation, Friends Indeed, and New York Theater Workshop. Rent moved to phenomenon status, the success leading to several national tours and numerous productions around the world, including Toronto, London's West End, Australia, Los Angeles, Germany, Ireland, Italy, Japan, the Philippines, Mexico, China, Hong Kong, South Korea, and many more places. Rent has been performed in 25 languages, including Danish, Estonian, Finnish, Icelandic, Norwegian, Swedish, Dutch, English, French, German, Portuguese, Spanish, Italian, Hungarian, Polish, Slovak, Greek, Russian, Mandarin Chinese, Cantonese Chinese, Korean, Japanese, Hebrew, Czech, and Catalan. Jonathan's family and friends took it upon themselves to continue the tradition of a peasant feast for all of the future companies of rent that they could get to. The Nederlander Lights. 
The Nederlander lights behind the plexiglass rent marquee would glow for one last time on September 7, 2008. After 5,123 performances and receiving an extension from its previous closing date in June 2008 due to popular demand, the Lime Green Theater would no longer house the beloved musical. The show held a final lottery draw, blocking off West 41st Street for the hundreds of fans who showed up to try their shot at being one of the lucky ones to observe the masterpiece one last time. Many left behind their tribute to Jonathan across the green walls of the theater in what had become largely known as the Rent Wall. At the time of closing, Rent was the seventh longest-running Broadway musical in history. After the production closed, Kathy Kirkpatrick, the owner of the Life Cafe, created a sort of memorial to Jonathan. In the back of the cafe, a gold nameplate now immortalizing the Jonathan Larson bench, where he would sit and write day after day, the wall behind now filled with posters, photographs, and news articles for future fans to see and be inspired by. In the center, a wooden Thank You Jonathan Larson plaque hand-carved by Jonathan's uncle, which the cast would touch backstage before every performance of Rent to bring Jonathan on stage with them. Rent head register books sat above the bench for fans to leave messages of gratitude to Jonathan. Al Larson would bring every new company of Rent to the Life Cafe to celebrate becoming a member of the Rent family. Since their closing in 2012, Kathy Life donated the Life Cafe bench immortalizing Jonathan to Adelphi University, where it sits on display for others to be inspired by. Despite Rent's Broadway closing, the flame still burned brightly. Only two years later, it was announced that Rent would have an off-Broadway run in 2011 at New World Stages. The production featured a cast of unknowns to fit the original vibe of the show. It unfortunately would close the following year. Following a string of live televised musicals, Fox presented the highly anticipated Rent Live on January 27, 2019. However, it was almost reminiscent of the tragedy that struck over 20 years before on Rent's off-Broadway first preview, which prompted the show must go on soul of the piece. During Rent's final dress rehearsal, actor Brennan Hunt, who was playing Roger, badly injured his ankle. The production didn't have understudies, so there was no one in the cast who was prepared to step in at the last minute. This left the production scrambling to figure out how it would air live. Luckily, the dress rehearsal had been filmed the previous night. Fox presented the already filmed but not complete show with the cast going live for the final number. After nearly four years in pre-production, a film adaptation of Tick Tick Boom was released on November 19th. The film marked the directorial debut of Lin-Manuel Miranda, who speaks openly about how Jonathan Larson's work changed his life as a creator. Producer Julio was first inspired to bring Tick Tick Boom to the screen after seeing Lin-Manuel Miranda star in the 2014 production at New York City Center as a part of Encores. O reached out to the head of the Larson estate. However, Jonathan's family was reluctant to give away the film rights due to concern over accurately portraying his story, rightfully so. Lin-Manuel Miranda and actor Andrew Garfield shared the same massage therapist. Lin asked the therapist if Andrew could sing, to which he confirmed he most certainly could. After their session, he called Andrew, telling him about Lin's inquiry. It wasn't long until Andrew was in vocal sessions learning how to sing with Liz Kaplan, who has coached Tony and Grammy Award winners and consulted on many film and television shows over her 43-year career. The team approached the film like they were making a musical. They held a secret workshop in Washington Heights where they heard the music in Stephen Levinson's script out loud for the first time. Andrew joined the process following his run in Angels in America, which is such a physically demanding role. 
His last performance was on a Sunday, and the first day of the workshop was on Monday. While the team was still auditioning others to fill roles, one thing was for certain. They had found their Jonathan Larson. The film included several unheard songs that had been stored at the Library of Congress, giving many longtime fans a first listen to Superbia. Jonathan's mentor and friend, Stephen Sondheim, even had a vocal cameo, which came about when Lin-Manuel Miranda sent a copy of the film for his insight, and he asked to rewrite his voicemail after viewing the film, as he felt he would not say what had been originally written. Sondheim even offered to record it himself. This cameo became Sondheim's last film appearance before he passed away on November 26, 2021 leaving fans with the reflection that there certainly are two giants in the sky. Jonathan Larson defined a generation. He brought hope to artists who aspired to have their work acknowledged and viewed publicly. This episode was a labor of love and wouldn't have been made possible without the help of the following people and institutions. The Library of Congress. For helping us access information about their Jonathan Larson collection, Amy Ash, for sharing her vast knowledge and graciously sending a copy of her wonderful catalog, compiling John's life work, along with the incredibly helpful chapter written with Maggie Lally in The Playwright's Muse by Joan Harrington, Jennifer Ashley Tepper, for the Jonathan Larson Project and her magnificent blog posts about her research. We also extend a thank you to Jonathan's family and friends, who have been so dedicated to continuing his legacy and thus making it possible for everyone to access research about Jonathan's life and legacy. We also dedicate this episode to Alan Larson, who passed away this past December. After going through the unimaginable loss of his son, he made it his life's work to honor Jonathan. And of course, thank you to Jonathan Larson himself for changing musical theater and for teaching us to measure our lives in love.